0: There are a lot of different ways to classify Rosh Hashanah, the new year, which is swiftly approaching. Of course, Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. Every human passes before God like an individual sheep and is judged. And what is going to befall that person, what is going to be bestowed upon that person is all determined on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is also a day of the coronation of God. God, of course, is the king of all kings. And his kingdom is renewed each Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a day that marks the anniversary of the creation of Adam. Adam was the first person. And thus, Adam transformed God from being a master, a ruler, a dominion, a sovereign into a king. Now he has followers. He has people that acknowledge that. And therefore, every year in Rosh Hashanah, we re-coronate God as our king. Rosh Hashanah is also the day of the renewal of man. If this is the anniversary of the creation of Adam, then this is the day where man was created, and therefore the day when man is recreated. And therefore, there is the opportunity and the power of renewal and reinvention every Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is also the beginning of the 10 days of repentance. We have 10 days dedicated to repenting, to tshuva, to returning to God. So there are all kinds of angles to this day, and there are all kinds of practices that are designed to evoke responses from us to get us in the zone, in the mode of this day. So of course, the mitzvah, of the days is the chauffeur and we blow a hundred blasts of the chauffeur, but it's also a festival and there's a festive atmosphere. And our sages tell us, even though we're going into judgment, and if we think about it, you're being judged by God. And that's terrifying because you can't really hide from the judge. And it should be really a terrifying day, but we're confident. We're part of this nation. We're part of a nation that has a special relationship with God, and therefore we're going to enter this day, this fearsome day of judgment, in a festive mode with a festive posture because we're confident that we will be exculpated. Of course, it's a day dedicated to prayer, very special prayers that are all designed to try to get the response from us that is going to help us make the most of the day and its opportunities. But today I want to focus on an interesting and frankly unusual aspect of Rosh Hashanah, and that is the special foods and fruits that we eat. Of course, there are many festive days and holidays that are associated with food. On festivals in general, our sages tell us, we're supposed to eat meat and drink wine, and on Pesach, we have the matzah, we eat the matzah, we don't eat the chametz. On Shavuos is the custom to eat dairy, cheesecakes, and casseroles, much to the chagrin of Meditarians like me. And there's this this old joke that you've heard a million times that all Jewish holidays and festivals are the same story. They tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. So, of course, foods are always associated with festivals. But in Rosh Hashanah, we have a bunch of very unusual food-related customs. On the nights of Rosh Hashanah, there is a ubiquitous custom, a tradition, to make auspicious omens. We take certain specified foods and we make declarations upon the consumption of those foods. So, of course, we, we dip the apple in the honey. And we asked to have a good and sweet New Year. And we dip the challah into the honey. And some have a custom to add the special sweet glaze to the challah, the streuzel. We eat pomegranates. Some people eat fish. Of course, you know that I'm not much of a fish eater. But some people have a custom to eat fish or even a head of a fish or a head of a sheep and carrots and cabbage and beets and dates and squash. All these foods are associated with Rosh Hashanah. And again, as we mentioned, customarily, they are accompanied by a special prayer. And it's kind of interesting how they take words that are the same word as the food in Hebrew, and they also incorporate them into the declaration, into the prayer. And thus when we we eat the carrots... We say she'yurbu yoseinu, let our merits increase. And when we eat the cabbage and the beets and the dates, we say special declarations. And the pomegranate, we say that let us increase our mitzvos like a pomegranate. Pomegranates packed with seeds. Let us be packed with mitzvos. And when those who eat fish, they eat the fish, let us proliferate like the fish. So this seems like a nice custom, but unlike most customs, this one is actually sourced in the Talmud. The Talmud, thousands of years ago, it was written and codified that on Rosh Hashanah, we eat these foods and we say these declarations. And what I want to do today is to try to understand What is the message of these foods? How can eating these foods and saying these prayers, how can they help us to have a more productive and meaningful Rosh Hashanah? We're eating these foods, these foods that seem to hint at what we really want from this year. And of course, all Jewish customs are replete with meaning and insight. And today I want to discover what is, or some ideas about this interesting custom of the consumption of various foods and fruits on Rosh Hashanah. And we find some really interesting ideas. So I want to start with a general concept and then drill down to the specifics. The first idea is that, you know, this day in general is associated with fruits, and well, not always in a good way. As we mentioned, Rosh Hashanah, well, that's the anniversary of the day that Adam was created. Now, a lot happened on that single day. On the same day that Adam was created, Eve was created, and they were placed in the garden, and they were told not to eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, that was inside the garden, and they violated that rule. And they ate from that tree. They ate from those fruits. Now the Talmud debates what was the fruit tree that is in question. Is it a wheat tree? Is it a fig? Is it a vine? But regardless, they violated the will of God. And they consumed that fruit with catastrophic consequences. The results of Adam's behavior, well, that's what we're still grappling with and struggling with until today. Humanity was drastically altered thanks to the consuming of that fruit on that very first Rosh Hashanah. Of course, Adam was booted from the garden. He got a Yetzirah. He was reduced in stature. He condemned humanity to die, now there's a mixture of good and bad. Man must die. Previously, man was destined to be eternal. As a result of Adam consuming from the fruit, we actually now have Torah, because the only way for us to navigate out of this mess that Adam brought upon us is with the guidance of Torah. You could say that our mission, the mission of all of humanity, since that time, since that first Rosh Hashanah, Since that first fateful and consequential Rosh Hashanah, our mission is to undo Adam's sin, to reverse that fruit consumption, to undo Adam's sin and its consequences, to find a way to reverse that consumption of fruit. And every Rosh Hashanah, we try to recalibrate ourselves and our life. And we remind ourselves What are we living for? What truly matters? What's the good within us that we want to triumph over the evil within us? You know, the whole year we're busy. We're asleep. We focus on all the trivial, inconsequential, insignificant, futile nonsense. Comes along Rosh Hashanah one day a year, two days a year, really a whole season. And we are aroused from our slumber. The chauffeur helps with that a lot. And we remember our creator. And we remember what we're living for. And we re-embrace our higher ideals and values. We get back on track. We restore our life mission. And we try to fix what Adam broke. And we symbolize this adjustment this transformation by eating fruits. And we're recognizing and we're acknowledging that this day can counter that other fruit that brought about such misery. This was the day of the fruit blunder. We're going to eat fruit now and try to fix it. Adam sinned by not obeying the will of God via eating fruit. On this day, we're going to try to realign ourselves with the will of God and symbolize that with fruits. So that's one idea, kind of a big picture idea about these auspicious foods and fruits. The B'nai Saskar says something astoundingly deep. Listen to this. Rosh Hashanah is the day when God determines life and death, who will live and who will die. Now, you may think that God should just choose who's going to die, because everyone who's alive is already alive. So couldn't you simplify this? Couldn't you just say, well, God will determine who will die? Why does God determine who will live and who will die? Our sates tell us that when we enter Rosh Hashanah, we are default dead. We're default dead. And therefore, we have to earn life. We can't assume that because we enter Rosh Hashanah living, that means that unless something changes, that's what's going to remain. No, we enter with nothing. And what will happen is determined. We have to earn life. We're dead and we're asking for life. Well, okay. What does that have to do with the simanim, the food omens, the propitious ceremonial fruits, the carrots, the beets, the squash, the apple, the honey? He says a deep point. We want life, but we don't want ordinary life. We want human life. The cat, the spider, maybe even the plant, they're also alive. But that's not the kind of life that we want. We want human life. And what's the mark of human life? What differentiates human life from all other life? The answer to that is verbal speech. When man was created, man became a living being, The unculus translates, man became a speaking being. Of course, animals communicate, but humans articulate. We give descriptions and words for everything. We're able to capture with words ideas, even subtle and nuanced ideas. That's what it means to be a human. And we enter Rosh Hashanah with the assumption, with a default status of not having that. And we're coming to God and we're knocking on his door and saying, give us life. Remember us for life. If we say that verbally, then it's an indication that we already have human life. How can you ask verbally using the superpower of humanity For human life, by the fact that you're asking for it verbally, that indicates that you already have it. And therefore, we want to ask for human life sans words, without words. We need a wordless prayer. And that is the deep idea, says the Bnei Yisachar, behind these auspicious Fruits. You're eating a fruit, and that is a silent, wordless prayer. Yes, we kind of tell ourselves what it's all about. We have a declaration, but the point of the prayer is really the consumption of those fruits. And that's because we had to devise a wordless prayer to demonstrate that we have nothing. We're not humans. We don't have a human life until the Almighty. Grants it to us. That's the second idea behind this very interesting practice, sourced in the Gemara and the Talmud. Another idea, this one's courtesy of the Chaye Adam. He quotes the Ramban, who says that a prophecy, a prophecy, is a determination or a revelation of what is true in the heavenly realms. But a prophecy, in order for it to be actualized, the prophecy has to descend from the heavenly realms and come into our world. Once the prophecy migrates from the heavenly realm into this world, then it gets cemented. It's possible for a prophecy to exist in heaven, but it just, it just stays there. And it doesn't travel here and therefore it's never actualized. And that's what we're worried about. We're worried about prophecies remaining in heaven and not getting cemented into this world. We don't want the heavenly tidings to remain in heaven and not to transpose to this world. By eating these fruits, and talking all about the blessings that they are referring to, that they are invoking, we're trying to cement the good tidings and prophecies into action in this world. All those positive decrees that may be present in heaven, we want them to translate into this world. And thus we symbolize all the potential good tidings with these ceremonial Foods. So we have three very deep ideas behind this really unusual but ubiquitous practice of eating all these foods that have all these prayers associated with them on Rosh Hashanah. It could be hearkening back to Adam and his destructive consumption of fruits on this day, and we're trying to fix that. It could be a wordless prayer to indicate that we are default dead and must be granted life, and it could be cementing bringing down, descending into this world the heavenly decrees, the positive heavenly decrees, making sure that they are grounded in this world. These are some of the big ideas behind the practice in general. Let's get down to the specifics. So, of course, we have honey, and we dip the chala into the honey, and we dip the apple into the honey, and the apple's really sweet, and the honey's really sweet, and we have sweetness on top of sweetness, and we say, let us have a good and sweet year. What's the deeper message behind this? So our sages tell us that honey, honey is an outlier. It's not a standard, ordinary food. Honey, of course, It's a byproduct. It's a derivative of the bees. If you want to eat a bee, it's not kosher. You want to eat the honey, the honey is kosher. So it's kind of strange because it is violating what we would expect. We would expect that kosher food comes from a kosher animal. And here suddenly, kosher food comes from a non-kosher animal. So maybe part of the message of the honey is that let good emerge even from non-good. Let the pleasant, let the sweetness come out of the villain. But there's another unique attribute found in the honey. A very interesting halacha. Honey transforms that that is subsumed in it. The Allah tells us, if you have non-kosher meat, and it's in the honey, that that is consumed, immersed in the honey, will eventually turn into honey itself. And thus, if you want a kosher way to eat non-kosher, you take the non-kosher, you dunk it into the honey, you leave it there long enough, it eventually will be transformed into honey itself. So isn't that an interesting aspect of, of, of honey? And this is really what's happening on Rosh Hashanah. There's a total transformation. Adam was created on Rosh Hashanah. This is the day when there was no Adam before Rosh Hashanah and comes along Rosh Hashanah, now there's Adam. There's something new that didn't exist prior. Even when something didn't exist prior, it could be completely transformed on Rosh Hashanah. Our tells tell us that Sarah was completely barren. She did not have the ability to have children. She lacked the hardware, the biology necessary to bear a child. She was infertile and then came along Rosh Hashanah. And man is created. Man, of course, means mankind, humanity. Humanity is created and recreated on this day. And Sarah entered Rosh Hashanah as infertile. And she emerged as fertile. Same thing with Hannah. Same thing with Rachel. Rachel. Someone could be in a state of being bad, not kosher. The bee, not kosher. Rosh Hashanah has the ability to turn that into something which is kosher, which is sweet, which is delicious. The bee has a stinger. There's a certain menace-like attribute to the bee, but what emerges is sweet. On this day, we were created. On this day, each year, we get recreated anew and something which was not kosher, which was a stinger, which was a menace, which was terrifying, which was broken, can enter and emerge as something completely different, as something sweet. And we dip things into honey as a form of hope and prayer for this total transformation we will be recreated on Rosh Hashanah and we're hoping that the effect of it will mirror that of honey. Along these lines, our statists tell us that there are two types of repentance. There's repentance done out of fear of God and there's repentance done out of love of God. And repentance done out of fear of God transforms all the wanton and willful sins into mistakes. And God does not punish you for mistakes. The mistakes happen. You're not going to be punished for it. And thus, when you repent out of fear of God, you won't be punished for those mistakes. But what about when someone repents out of love of God? Then, those sins are not transformed into mistakes that you're not going to be punished for, They're transformed into mitzvos, like the honey. You take the non-kosher, you immerse it into the honey, and what emerges? It's not just something which is neutral, it's something which is kosher, which is delicious, which is sweet. And thus, all that symbolism is featured in the honey, and... These are ideas to help us get the most of this day and to realize the tremendous power and potency and opportunity that is found on Rosh Hashanah. Now, what do we say when we dip the apple in the honey? We want a shana tova umituka. We want a good year and a sweet year. Now, there seems to be some redundancy here. If it's a good year, it's a good year! Why does it need to be sweet as well? So the commentators give an answer that everything could be good, but not everything is sweet. When the great Rabbi Akiva had troubles befall him, he had an aphorism that he would say, call to alrahman of it everything that god does is for the good your animal dies your pet dies no one wants to be nice to you you're suffering it's it's good it's good how can it be good well everything god does is good but it's painful but it doesn't make any sense but why would god do it it's inexplicable yes But if God does it, it's good. Only God has the complete picture. Only he sees the whole field and knows why things that appear to us to be bad are actually good. And Rabbi Kiva had the faith to be able to accept that. And when God did something bad or what he perceived to be bad, he said, well, it's actually good. What do we want for this year upcoming? We don't only want a good year. We want a sweet year. A sweet year means a year that's good. But you could also sense it. You could also taste it. You could also perceive the goodness. And we want goodness that's sweet. Now there's another point to this. Sometimes... The more bitter something is, the more good it is. What do I mean? What does it mean good? It means it's good for you on an existential level. It helps you advance. It helps you grow. It helps you flourish spiritually. It helps you ascend spiritually. The sad and unfortunate truth is, that sometimes we flourish the most under the most trying of circumstances. When things are bad, when there are challenges, when we're faced with very difficult trials. Sometimes that brings the best out of us. And therefore, we're asking for a good year. We want to make sure that we're not asking for a bitter year. We want challenges, yes, but make them sweet challenges. We want difficulties, yes, but make it sweet. Let our ascent be pleasant as well as good. When we eat the carrots, we say, Let our merits be increased. Now this seems like an implausible request. If you do mitzvos, well, you'll have merits. If you don't do mitzvos, well, how can you game the system? There's no way to game the system so here's the answer: We're asking for our merits to be increased. We just said earlier, there are two kinds of repentance: repentance out of fear. And repentance out of love. When someone repents, well, their sins are expunged. But what happens to those sins? If it's repentance out of fear, well, those sins get transformed to mistakes, something that you won't be punished for. If someone repents out of love of God, they have a relationship with God. They love God like a parent. They regret their mistakes because of what it did to their relationship. Such a heartfelt and loving repentance transforms sins into mitzvos, Increase our merits. Artificially allow us to have more merits. Help us repent out of love. And therefore we can increase those merits via the magic of repentance and of love when we eat the pomegranate we ask we pray that we should be replete with mitzvot like a pomegranate if you ever open up a pomegranate it's bursting with seeds and we're hoping and we're praying that we should be as packed with mitzvot as the pomegranate is packed with seeds now, all the commentators asked the same question. We're hoping. We're praying. We're eating the pomegranate on Rosh Hashanah, and we're saying, allow us to be as full of mitzvos as this pomegranate is full of seeds. But this is a problematic statement. Why? The Talmud in several places, Erevin 19a, Sanhedrin 37a, the Thomas was talking about wicked people, wicked Jews, sinners. The sinners of the Jewish people are as filled with mitzvos as a pomegranate. The empty ones, the wanton sinners, they are as filled with mitzvos as a pomegranate is filled with seeds. So if I were to tell you this Talmud, you would conclude that being full of mitzvot like a pomegranate, that's not so impressive. Even the sinners, even the empty ones amongst us, are full of mitzvot like a pomegranate. Comes along Rosh Hashanah, and we have this auspicious omen in every Jewish home on the nights of Rosh Hashanah. We take a pomegranate, and we expose all the seeds, and we consume them, and we add a prayer, let us be as full of mitzvos as the pomegranate. If this is not so impressive, if this is the mark of the sinner, why are we aspiring for it on Rosh Hashanah? So all the commentators ask this question, and they give a variety of answers. Some say, well, the wicked sinners, they're full of mitzvos like a pomegranate, but that takes a whole lifetime, and we're hoping in one year to be as full of mitzvos as a pomegranate. It shouldn't take a lifetime. Every year should be the equivalent of the mitzvos of a sinner over a lifetime. One answer. A second answer is that the wicked ones, yes, they may have mitzvos, but they also have tons of sins. And we're praying to have the mitzvos, but not the sins. Others suggest, well, the sinners are like the peel of the pomegranate and, and it has some bitterness and they have mitzvos. yes, but there's a degree of bitterness to it. There are a variety of answers given to this question. I want to suggest perhaps another explanation. The Talmud tells us that the sinners of Israel are full of mitzvos like a pomegranate. Well, if they're full of mitzvos, like a pomegranate. What are they missing? What's lacking if you are already full of mitzvos like a pomegranate? So my grandfather, a blessed memory, used to say that, well, they have a lot of mitzvos. The quantity is there, but not the quality. You have two people, they're both wrapped filling. One of them is thinking about being bound to his creator and accepting the yoke of heaven. And accepting Torah, and connecting yourself to your Creator, and one's just doing it mindlessly. Quantity-wise, they both do the same mitzvah, but one has the quality of a mitzvah done with intention, with devotion, with the proper motivation, and thus that's the explanation. Of the Talmud that says that the wicked ones, they have it without the quality. Here's another explanation for that Talmud. This I heard attributed to a variety of people, including the great Chacham Ovadia. If you open up a pomegranate, you will see a lot of seeds. How many seeds? So there's the old wives' tale that there are 613 seeds in a pomegranate. It's actually not true. There could be anywhere from like 200 to 1,000. you'll notice that every seed is kind of sheathed in its own little packet, in its own little pocket, and is isolated. Each one is on its own. And you could kind of, if you unpack it, you'll have a lot of different, discrete, isolated, separated, disjointed seeds. Each seed is on its own. Each one is disconnected from the other ones. You look at an orange or any other fruit, it's more in mesh. It's more one. It's more of a single unit. There's a certain coexistence of the fruit. It's like a symphony. The pomegranate, each seed is on its own. And that's the mark of of the sinner, really. The sinner does a lot of mitzvahs. But each mitzvah is isolated, is discreet, is disconnected from a life vision. Ideally, the mitzvah should be part of of a life plan. It should be a fulfillment of a, of a certain mission, a certain focus, an overarching objective, one single objective. You want to develop a relationship with your Creator. You want to live your life the best way possible. That's the ideal. A sinner can do a lot of mitzvos, but they're isolated. They're, they're fragmented. They're disjointed. They're not connected to a cohesive, unified life goal. It's like a pomegranate. Of course, the way we're supposed to live is that all our mitzvahs should all bring us towards the single goal of connecting to our Creator. Accepting the yoke of heaven. What does that mean? It means that every mitzvah is really about bringing us closer towards our ultimate goal. It's not just an isolated, disjointed, good deed. That's for the sinners. Ideally, each mitzvah is part of a generalized, unified, life, focus, and mission of forging a relationship between man and God. The rest of the year, having a lot of mitzvos, like a pomegranate, that's for the wicked. Comes a little Rosh Hashanah. The whole day of Rosh Hashanah, is all oriented to finding, to refinding, to rediscovering that unified purpose of life. We coronate God. We accept his dominion. And we refocus on what life is all about. Yom Kippur is all about the details. Every mitzvah, every sin, everything that we did right, everything that we did wrong. Rosh Hashanah is about the goal, the objective. What's life really about? What's the unified purpose of our lives? And we discover that and we rededicate ourselves back to the original mission. In that state, when we have a unified purpose, then we could say, now we want to be filled with mitzvahs like pomegranate. It won't remain like a pomegranate. It won't remain disjointed because now we need just the masses of mitzvahs because now they're all marching to the same beat, bringing us towards the same goal of forging a relationship with God. Now we have a unified purpose. Those seeds are no longer isolated. They're part of the unified vision and purpose. And finally, some people who eat fish take the head of the fish You know, we like to take in our family to have those little candies in the shape of a fish. You've seen those? We take that and we try to fulfill this custom with a fish that's more palatable to us. They take the head of the fish and they say, let us be like a head and not like a tail. And I've heard this described as the head is always looking forward. The tail is always lagging, looking backwards. If you look at the tail, if you're looking backwards... You're looking at missed opportunities of the past. On Rosh Hashanah, we have so much opportunity to reinvent ourselves, to recreate ourselves, to determine what kind of person we're going to be. We don't want to look back at the tail and regret not maximizing the opportunity of Rosh Hashanah. We don't want to be looking back in regret of missing this opportunity. May we all merit to have a shana tova u'mituka, a good year, a sweet year, a year replete with blessing, a year replete with divine goodness, a year of very pleasant and sweet ascension. Let us all have a meaningful, uplifting, powerful Rosh Hashanah. Let us coronate God upon us. Let us rediscover what we're really living for and let us all be inscribed and sealed in the book of life. Please guide me another great year of Torah study from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.